We are back in the Gospel of Mark, and tonight our passage, which you can see on the bulletin, it's a little bit longer, it's like 23 verses, and it sort of gets in the weeds a little bit. Um, And so before we just throw our hands up and give up on this one, I just want to encourage us with a little bit of context. Um, Remember that the Gospel of Mark, from the very first verse, it tells us that it is the good news of Jesus, the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And that means that everything in the Gospel of Mark is somehow, way, shape, or form, good news. And I guess my job as, as the pastor and the preacher tonight is um, to unpack that for us and to show us how it could possibly be good news. So that's, that's what's on my plate. And in order, I think, to get the good news out of this passage, we're going to have to just sort of look a little bit at the context. Let me give us a reminder, because uh, it's been two weeks now since, since I preached out of Mark's Gospel. Um, And I'll just remind you that just the story right before the one we're going to look at, Jesus has fed the 5,000 people in the wilderness with five loaves and two fish. Remember, he's left over with this abundance of food such that everybody is full and there's still 12 baskets left over. And then right after that episode, the disciples of Jesus reveal that they are dull to Jesus's true identity. He comes out walking on the water. Um, The the disciples don't get who he really is yet, but the crowds of people waiting for him on the other shore, they don't know nearly as much about Jesus as the disciples do, and yet they show just such faith, desperate faith, the kind of faith where they don't have any theological nuance, They, they, they don't necessarily know lots of things, but they know one thing, they're in trouble, they're sick, they can't be healed, and they are trusting in Jesus. And so they're revealed as people of great faith. Jesus is not in these stories only speaking audacious claims about himself. Jesus was performing audacious works of power for all types of people. And particularly, he was doing these things for the good of the poor, for the good of the sick, for the good of the needy, those who trusted him for their healing and salvation. Now, in the midst of all of this fullness, this fruitfulness, this undoing of the curse of sin, the religious leaders decide to take issue with the types of things that Jesus is saying and the types of things that Jesus is doing. And they're concerned with his apparent lack of religious seriousness. And so this next passage, the one we're going to look at tonight is sort of long and sprawling. And what I'm going to do for us is take it in chunks. I'm going to read a chunk, and then I'm going to try and break that down and move on to the next one, just so we can keep that all in our heads and what we're trying to do. And so here I'm going to start. Mark 7, verses 1 through 5. Here's here's how the story goes. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that's Jesus, and as they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then in parentheses, Mark adds, for the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as washing of the cups and pitchers and copper pots. Okay, that's in parentheses. And by the way, just a little side note. This is a little bit of a clue that Mark's audience probably contains lots of Gentile people or Jew converts to Judaism 
who are Greek or Gentile in background because he has to explain all of this stuff to them. There probably aren't, you know, homegrown Jewish people who would need no explanation, okay? Hey, and what I like about Mark is that most of us are in that camp, right? Like, I need an explanation. I don't understand all this stuff about washing pots and hands and, and all of that. Okay, so here we have Jesus healing the sick, doing the work of God on earth. All of these things are evidence of God's kingdom breaking in. And word must have been spreading, right? Because as you would imagine it would if someone showed up to our town and was healing people and casting out demons and doing stuff that people don't normally do. Amazing. Anyway, so religious leaders hear about this. They're dispatched from Jerusalem to investigate. And it is easy, like it is low-hanging fruit to start dogging on the Pharisees and the scribes and show how messed up they are. But let me just pause for a moment and let us try and see a little bit through their lens why they're so upset, okay? So Pharisees were popular in the truest sense of that word, meaning they were sort of spiritual champions that people looked up to in the nation of Israel. To be a Pharisee was to live radically different, to pursue God by adhering passionately and faithfully to the, God, uh, to the laws of God as revealed in Scripture. So these dudes were like on fire for God. And over the years, Pharisees sometimes made traditions and extra laws to live by that were above and beyond what the scriptures called for, not because they were like jerks or something, but because they truly wanted to live holy lives. And in fact, we do a lot of traditional things that aren't in scripture because we believe that they help us have a deeper life with Jesus. So two examples I didn't grow up with much are like Advent and Lent, things that these seasons of the Christian calendar, you won't find those in scripture and I guarantee you they could become bad if we just do them because everybody does them. But we do them as ways to, to deepen our devotional life with God. And for that, they are good things. And so the Pharisees were doing some similar things. For example, um, uh, they, they were buddies with these guys, the scribes, who were experts in the, in the biblical law. Sometimes scribes are referred to as lawyers in scripture uh, because like a lawyer, they would investigate the finest nuances of the text to, at their best, figure out how to apply scripture, right? That's important. But at their worst, they would figure out how to skirt the demands of scripture for the parts that they didn't really want to do. And we all do that, don't we? Oh, anyway. uh, so um, take keeping Sabbath as an example. The scribes and the Pharisees wrestled, as lots of teachers did, with what does it mean to keep the Sabbath faithfully? Like, what if we accidentally worked and somehow offended God? Better to make some concrete rules that they could follow to be extra sure that they didn't break the law of the Sabbath. And so they would make up rules and traditions um, like not taking more than a thousand steps in a day on the Sabbath. Like, that's not in the Bible. The Bible just says, you shall do no work on the Sabbath. And they're like, well, what is work? We think you can do a day without a thousand steps. And that would be, so that was one of their rules that they created, right? Um, they would cook meals the day before so that you could eat on the Sabbath, but not have to do the work of preparing the food on the Sabbath, right? So that, that sort of, these things make sense, right? Um, and in our story, they've also added to laws about ceremonial washing. Purity in the Bible is about being set apart to properly relate to God and to the people of God. And in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, priests, only priests, 
were required to ceremonially wash their hands before eating consecrated food. That means food that's been offered to God in the temple or in the tabernacle, as the case may be. Lay people, everybody who wasn't a priest, were not required to do these washings, partly because they were never eating consecrated food. And the reason for the ceremonial hand washing was for ritual purity, okay? Now, people believed that you could become ceremonially unclean if you touch something dead or you touch the wrong kind of animal or any number of different ways. So the priests were commanded to wash to remove any impurity while doing their holy work in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, these Pharisees, they took this law about the priests before ceremonial washing, and they said, you know what? We all want to be holy after God. This is very Protestant, by the way, the priesthood of believers, don't we all? Like, we don't think there's a real hierarchy. You've called me to pastor and preach. I'm no more holy than you, though. Um, right? So, so this is very similar to what we've got going on. Now, these Pharisees, they said, you know, we want to be close to God, and we think everybody should be close to God, not the, just the priests. So why don't we do this thing where everybody washes before they eat? So in this case, in this story, they've come up from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. They've been hearing about the work of Jesus and the claims that people are making about Jesus, and, and they feel that it is their responsibility to make sure that this man not only lives up to the hype, but that he's the sort of serious religious man like they are who's seeking after the holiness of God. They've devoted their lives to seeking the best way to follow God, and you can at least understand from their perspective that they want to validate this miracle worker who's stirring up crowds so that he's not misleading people. I guarantee you we would all want to do the same thing if some prophet dropped out of the sky or came to town and was doing all kinds of amazing things. I could see myself being skeptical, like, does he follow the word? You know what I mean? Like, we get it. This is what the Pharisees were trying to do. But now that I've given us maybe a little bit of their perspective, let's observe the heart with which they do their work. See, I think that a good heart, a pure heart rejoices in goodness And a pure heart is moved to softness in the face of beauty and healing, freedom and creation. But these religious leaders who had come from Jerusalem seemed to be looking with a critical eye, with a judgmental eye. They seemed to have come looking for a reason to disqualify what's going on and to disqualify the life of Jesus. And so they asked this question, like, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They eat their bread with impure hands. I mean, you just imagine the juxtaposition. Here's Jesus healing some poor person who's desperately, you know, been ill all their life or casting out a demon, these amazing things. And they're like, yeah, but why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat bread? I mean, it takes a special jaded heart to sort of like focus on the one negative thing that they see. Now, Jesus could have said something like, well, they don't wash because they're not priests. And in the scriptures, it says only priests wash their hands. But I get the sense that Jesus isn't here trying to win an argument on who knows the Bible better. Jesus sees through them and he sees their heart. And he says to them, this is the next part of the passage, verse six, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this is quoting Isaiah now, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men or anthropos, human beings. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of humans. And he was also saying to them, you experts are setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Pharisees and scribes, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you, It's Corbin, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit this person to do anything for his father and mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many things such as this. You know, the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God has given you. That is... One of the 10, one of the big 10 that God has given us. And part of honoring your father and mother in that day and age was to care for their basic needs as they grew older. Part of the reason people had lots of kids. And in a time without Medicare and Social Security and retirement plans, your children were your retirement plan and they were supposed to care for you. Well, some adult children didn't want to care for their children or their parents. They at least didn't want to do it financially. And so the Pharisees allowed this man-made tradition called Corban, spelled just like it sounds, C-O-R-B-A-N. Corban literally means dedicated. So by declaring your financial estate Corban, you were saying, sorry, mom and dad, my money belongs to God, aren't I holy? And, And you could live off of that money as long as you were around, but you couldn't give any of it away, not even to your parents. And what was happening is that from time to time, when, someone's, uh, when, when the parents died, is that the children would claim back their Corbin, either in full or in part. It would be like giving a big gift of your finances to the church. It just sits there. It's not good for anything. It can't help your parents. And then when your parents die, you're like, so I need some of that back. And that was a loophole that the scribes and Pharisees sort of made kind of rotten. And so in essence, they're allowing people to break the law of God in the name of serving God. So what is Jesus getting at? First, let me just say what Jesus is not getting at. Jesus is not like anti-tradition. Tradition, that word, means to just pass something down to someone else. Um, Tradition is a way of teaching. We teach, like in, in, in secular schools, we teach a lot of tradition and Churches, we teach tradition. In your family system, you treat, you have traditions that you hand down. Some of them are good, some of them are not good. But tradition by itself is not bad. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or from letter or from us. And then he says, I command you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. So that tradition of the gospel is the teaching, right? So it's good. Tradition should uphold the word of God, not distract from the word of God. Tradition should serve to build up the church of Christ, not to kill the church of Christ. Tradition should serve us to keep the commands of God, not like Corbin to skirt the commands of God. 
right? And I love this quote by historical theologian uh, Jaroslav Pelikan, who, who says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Jesus is after this. He's after the heart, the why that we do things. And he sees through the traditionalism of the Pharisees and into their kind of vacant hearts. And he quotes Isaiah 29 to them. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. That's in the New Living Translation. Just mix it up a little bit. Isaiah 29. Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before eating the bread. Pharisees were right. Jesus is doing something new. It's not that the law is bad or that the traditions of the elders were worthless. It's that a new thing was happening in him. And that the law, all that the law was pointing toward in the Hebrew scriptures was being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. All of the law was pointing to was being fulfilled in the person and in the ministry of Jesus. If the law was to help us, I say that people, Hebrew people before Christ, if the law was to help people be in right relationship with God, and if Jesus is God in flesh, then the law is fulfilled in Christ. When we make our life, personal life, but also church life, more about the boundaries than about living, more about the rules than the people in our lives, more about our righteousness than about the God who makes us righteous, we have problems. We have the cart before the horse or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's backwards. The story now shifts. This has all been taking place because Jesus is doing healing and the Pharisees come from Jerusalem and they confront him. They ask him a question and he answers that question. Now you have to, you have to realize, let's say you're the crowds. I'll be Jesus because I'm standing here. The disciples are maybe right here, and then the Pharisees come, and you're listening to all this back and forth with the Pharisees. Now Jesus turns to the crowd, so his audience is new, but now they're listening, and the disciples are listening, okay? Now he addresses the crowds, and he said, he called the crowd to him again. He begins saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a human being that can defile a person if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the person. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. I mean, you have to appreciate that one of the biggest markers of Jewish identity was keeping kosher. That is strict dietary restrictions against eating things like pork and shellfish and lots of other various foods. These weren't merely traditions of humans. Like these are scriptural commands. They were meant to prevent Israel from mixing with foreign peoples who were pagans and worshiping other gods and goddesses, oftentimes through the sacrifice of pork products, of pigs, and, and, and things like that. So it was really to help separate them from pagan influence. These are good laws that God gives his people. 
But Jesus isn't so much talking about specific dietary laws as he is explaining a basic principle. It is the heart of a person that makes them holy or unholy, clean or unclean. It's not merely outward actions. There are lots of people, lots of people who are very religious, who do the right religious things, but do them begrudgingly or with the spirit of superiority or self-righteousness. You know, it's, it's for some personalities, I probably kind of fit that category. Like, it's tempting to feel like you're in some sort of control over your spiritual life, right? To so like, I'm going to do these things and it's going to put me in the track of Jesus and, and awesome. I'm going to check the box. Like, it's just, it's easy. It's, it's tempting to feel like you're self-contained, self-sufficient, right in your own eyes for doing the right stuff. Doing religious things, though, and and following a bunch of rules, it's hard work, but it's easy compared to letting Jesus transform your heart. Doing a bunch of good things is hard work, but it's easy compared to the hard work of surrender. Now, in the third and final movement of the story, Jesus now turns from the crowds and from the Pharisees, and he turns to his own disciples. And he says this, when he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile them? Because it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's in parentheses. And he was saying that was proceeds out of a person. That is what defiles the person. From within, out of the heart, people proceed uh, evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile a person. So for all of you kids out there or young at heart, this is for you. Jesus uses bathroom humor to make his point. The point is obvious. Whatever you put in your body, it doesn't doesn't go to your spiritual heart. It goes to your stomach and is put in the toilet, right? Like it just, he's being very graphic here. Food, the way you eat, what you, you know, it just comes in and out. It's not really what makes you you. It doesn't really form your character. It's your character that decides who you are, that makes you clean or unclean, holy or unrighteous. And Jesus says, it is from the heart, it is from the core of who we are that precedes things that come out like evil thoughts. And, and then he has this list, you know, like what a list this is. Just try not to find one of your sins or vices in this list that Jesus gives us. That is, you know, from the heart, Jesus says, comes fornications. That's a stupid English word for sexual, uh, immoral thoughts and actions. Like that probably just got us all to in some way, shape, or form. Um, but if not, here's one theft. And I'm not just bank robbery or burglary, right? But like any form of stealing, you know, like wasting the time of your employer or wasting the time of your employees if you're just, bad at leading people, right? Um, Not paying people what they're worth. Um, 
using your buddy's uh, Netflix account, you know, stealing from somebody. Like, the wealth. It's, this is low-hanging fruit, right? Um, from the heart comes murder, right? Well, I guess we're safe from that one. But what about murdering people's reputation or um, using speech and dehumanizing ways of thinking about people? Really, character assassination. We murder people all the time in social media. And adultery, breaking your marriage vows of fidelity. Coveting what someone else has, and then just to close it out, he says, wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things proceed from within and defile a person. Guilty on multiple fronts, and you're lying to yourself if you're not too. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and just of interesting note, like Jesus uses an example earlier to the Pharisees of the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. This list of vices covers commandments six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And all of those commandments on the second half of the 10 commandments are the ones that deal with relating to other people. You know, what's interesting is that the Pharisees who accused Jesus were probably doing pretty well on the first side of the Ten Commandments. I doubt they were idolatrous. I doubt they took the name of the Lord in vain. They probably kept the Sabbath. But they're the same people who would be jealous of Jesus, covet his popularity, perform character assassination on him, raise up false witnesses, and then bring him to the Romans, basically accomplices in his own murder. Isn't that interesting? How we can be so religiously righteous and yet wicked on the inside. And we see this over and over again, shockingly, sadly, with religious leaders who are strict about the religious things, but whose lives bring a wake of relational chaos and destruction. And our country is, is unique in the sense that I think, I think, Joe can correct me here, I think most, if not all, our American presidents are somehow professed to be Christian on both sides of the aisle. Um, we have, we just like our presidents for some reason to cozy up to Christian leaders and to have shots of them praying and to, um, to claim that they read the Bible, but then behave in ways that are completely anti-Christian. Uh, often enacting policies that are dehumanizing and destructive. So again, we have this juxtaposition where we like the religious checking those boxes, but we don't live it out in our ethics. Actions matter, and actions come from the heart. Now, this list of sin and vices is not made to shame us. Not made to shame us. Remember, this is the good news of the gospel, and it's in the gospel of Mark. So somehow... This is good news for us. I think this list isn't made to shame us, but it is made to humble us. If ever, like the Pharisees, we had thought that our own outward religious actions were going to make us right before God, then Jesus aims to humble us. And here's why I think that that's good news. Because humility leads to self-awareness. And self-awareness leads to repentance. 
which is a confession of when we're wrong, admitting we need help, and desiring to be different. And repentance before Jesus, not just repentance in general, but repentance before Jesus leads to freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt. And if you're an Enneagram one like me, or you're just an eldest child also like me, or if you just get what I'm saying here, repentance leads us to freedom from having to think you're always right. That's the gospel. We look at the people in the story, the Pharisees, the scribes, the crowds, the disciples, and none of them are better than the others. All are equally in need of forgiveness and grace. It's just that the only way to receive forgiveness and grace is to admit that you need it. To know where it comes from is essential. It comes from Jesus, not our performance. So my sisters and brothers, this is extremely good news that when we humble ourselves and accept that Jesus is the only way to forgiveness, wholeness, and righteousness, then we find true freedom and true joy because there's joy in a humble heart before God. This being a fourth Sunday of the month, we now have the opportunity for some healing prayer. And... um, Joan Youngquist and I will be at these kneelers and the worship team will come and and be playing some some music. And I encourage you, if something struck a chord with you in this this message and hearing the gospel in this way, you might want to, to process that with the Lord. If you'd like, I'd love to pray with you about it. Or you can come forward for prayer if you've got some other sort of physical thing you'd like to pray for, spiritual, emotional. But Joan and I are here for you to, to pray for you and with you.